Welcome to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram, where we talk all things leadership, change, and transformation. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. We are on the last day of the six day in a row uh, serialized reading of the first chapter of my book, Conversations of Change, A Guide to Implementing Workplace Change. Um, As I said at the start, this was a bit of an experiment to see whether there was interest in things like audiobooks um, and whether something that's probably a little bit more fact-based or um, education-based is of interest to you. So um, as I've said before, really keen to hear your feedback on this. So um, whether you let me know through LinkedIn um, or Twitter, if you're on Twitter, or even you want to drop me an email, um, let me know if you have found this valuable and of use. Um, let me know if you hated it. That's cool too. It's all really good feedback. So if this is the first time you've landed on the podcast, I'm going to encourage you to scroll back to five days ago where we started on this. Otherwise, you're coming in at the very last chapter, which I think is probably still going to be helpful even without the ones before, but you might have a little bit more context. So chapter six, the adventure begins, frameworks and models. Okay, sleeves rolled up, let's get moving. You've got a good sense of what this field is about now, how you should resource your initiative and how to set yourself up for success. Let's move on to what model or framework you should use. Now, one of the things I hear frequently is people talking about change management as something being new, as being something new. And I think if we look at history and the organization, we see that change management is not new at all. Even today, one of the claims that is often made is the only constant is change, as referenced to Heraclitus in 535 BC to 435 BC. Niccolo Machiavelli noted, there is nothing more difficult and dangerous or more doubtful of success than an attempt to introduce a new order of things. And that was in The Prince in 1513. So if you trace the evolution of management theory, you will see that each paradigm of management dealt with change management, albeit with a, often with a singular focus. So for example, scientific management, you might understand that as Taylorism, during the 1880s to the 1920s, dealt with task-focused change to improve efficiency. Later, popularized by his 1922, 22 essay, Bureaucratization, Weber laid out the principles for structural change. The human relations approach, initiated in the 1920s, focused more on making changes that addressed how people related to their roles and colleagues. The social technical systems approach, STS, in the 1950s, dealt more with addressing the interdependencies of systems, technology and people. So what is perhaps new is the focus on change management as a profession and the charging of money for the knowledge on how to change companies. So I would argue that this practice emerged from the 1980s and we can thank the big six consulting groups and Daryl Connor, one of the industry's most influential change management experts, for the commodification of change management intellectual property. 
It was at this time, too, that many of the core publications that made it to managers' desks emerged. So with that, I'm thinking Rosabeth Moss Cantor's The Change Masters in 1983, Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline in 1990, William Bridges, Managing Transitions, 1991, Hammer and Champy, the BPR, uh, uh, Re-Engineering the Corporation, 1993, Daryl Connor, Managing at the Speed of Change, 1993, John Cotter, Leading Change, 1996, and of course, the perennial favourite, Spencer Johnson, who moved my cheese in 1998. Now, in the 90s, we saw positive psychology start to create a strong influence in the field. And by the 2000s, we had a wide proliferation of change models and frameworks in existence. This period also saw the multiplying of change initiatives, where before an organisation might have gone through a major change once every three to five years, the tempo of change increased so that as the new century took flight, most organisations were undergoing continuous changes on a regular and often relentless basis. Now, you will find a plethora of models and frameworks available for you to use. Many are generated after much research. Some are generated simply as something to license to make some money from. Now, in thinking about the utility of certain change models and why, even if you have one, change can be still hard to do, I recalled an academic paper from a while ago. And it struck me that it explained the conundrum well. So let me run it by you. So Carl Weick was an academic who wrote the piece. Weick was one of my absolute favourites to study. He's an organisational theorist who writes on sense-making, among other things. And he's a super storyteller. And his academic writing is incredibly easy to read. So at the risk of getting um, very, very nerdy on you, if you get the chance, check out his paper, The Collapse of Sensemaking in Organisations, The Man Gulch Disaster, in the Administrative Science Quarterly, Volume 38. Um, you know, when I catch up with friends from uni, we, we often still talk about that article. It's, um, it's incredibly compelling and memorable. Anyway, the article I'm thinking of that Vike wrote tells of the trade-offs in writing good theory, and it's called Conclusion, Theory Construction as Disciplined Reflexivity, Trade-Offs in the 90s. It was published in the Academy of Management Review, Volume 24, Number 4, October 1990. In it, Vag argues that there is a trade-off in theory development of three attributes, generalizability, accuracy, and simplicity. He suggests that you can only only ever get two of those three. So... Hang with me. For instance, a theory that is simple and accurate can't be generalizable to the greater population. A theory that is simple and general will never be accurate. And a theory that is accurate and general is going to be very, very complex, so not simple at all. So, of course, change models and change frameworks are simply an extension of theory, right? Simplicity in change models is easy to align. Any of the three steps, eight steps, five stages, are representative of simple models. Now, accuracy is less easy to define. So for me, it speaks of comprehensive, complicated and nuanced change models. So considering multiple contextual factors. I don't know of many change models that do that, to be honest. That tends to be what you develop in situ while you're in organisations. And general suggests one size fits all, something that can apply to most change. And look, many of the change models and frameworks out there do that. 
So it stands to reason that a change model that is simple and general won't be accurate or comprehensive. A change model that is accurate and comprehensive and generalized to many situations, it's going to be pretty complicated. And the change model that's simple and accurate, well, it might just be a one-off or an industry-specific model. You know, sometimes magic happens. I found that anything that is simple and general has needed a lot of tweaking and adapting to make it work for the circumstances, which is the reason why you do want to get an experienced change practitioner to work with you. They should have enough experience to tailor generic change models and frameworks to your circumstances. Better still, they know when to drop the model or framework when your feedback tells you it's not fit for purpose. Kelvin Hard, chairman of the Kairos Management Consultants in the UK, articulates it well with the musician's metaphor. He says, change management frameworks can be useful in helping change leaders and change teams to have a sense of what's going on. But their limiting factor is when an issue arises which is not covered by the framework or at a different stage from when the framework says it's supposed to occur. A top change consultant will know and assess the frameworks but be able to move beyond them when the context demands. Here is a musical analogy. A good trained musician will be able to play a set piece of music by following the notes. A great musician will be able to play jazz, to play a set of notes which have never been played before and never will again, but which are just right for that specific time and place. So with those concepts in place, simple, general and accurate in place, let's review six of the models you've got available to you. They are all relatively simple and general. Accuracy is up to how you contextualize them. So the first one is ProSize ADCAR model. ProSize ADCAR model is by far the most popular today and used across multiple countries and regions. ADCAR represents five milestones that an individual should achieve if successful changes to occur. A, awareness of the need for change. D, desire to participate in and support the change. K, knowledge on how to change. A. Ability to implement required skills and behaviours. And R. Reinforcement to sustain the change. Now, supplementing this is a three-phase change process. First, prepare for change. Second, manage the change. And third, reinforce the change. Now, ProSci was founded by Jeff Hyatt. You are required to be certified in it before you can say that you use the ProSci process. And it has a suite of tools and templates associated with it. It's globally recognized and companies are licensed to provide the certification and training by ProSci. Now, most of the organizations that I've worked in that use ProSci don't use it beyond ticking off ADCAR in their change plan. And it's a safety net. We've got people who are accredited in ProSci will be right. Now, that's not to diminish the value of the methodology. I think it's a strong one. You also get access to contemporary research with best practice reports, webinars, online communities and ongoing product development. Certification in the use of the methodology will set you back just under $6,000 Australian dollars and take three days. I would suggest that you try reading Jeff Hyatt's book first, um, ADCA, How to Implement Successful Change in Our Personal Lives and Professional Careers to see if it resonates with you. Then there's Change First PCI, People Centred Implementation. So this is also taking purchase, particularly in the Australian market, from Change First. Also international, it relies on six critical success factors. The change methodology is also supplemented by cloud-based online community, eChange, and like ProSci, ChangeFirst offers white papers, workshops, training, and research. 
It will cost you less. It's about um, $3,500 Australian dollars, including a three-year subscription to the eChange platform, and it also takes three days to do. Again, I would recommend downloading the white papers from ChangeFirst to get a sense of how it works within your organization. Cotter's Eight Steps. Now, often you see people in recruiting advertisements uh, wanting people who are certified in Cotter's Eight Steps. Now, while a few training providers can be found to offer a leading change certification based on his work, his company doesn't actually offer a leading change certification or something that's endorsed by them. So it shows why you're not alone in feeling lost in all of the gobbledygook on the, on the web. What Cotter International does offer is their eight-step change process as outlined in Cotter's 1996 book, Leading Change. The eight steps are creating a climate for change. So first of all, increasing urgency, building the guiding team, getting the vision right. Then engaging the enabling organization. So communicate for buy-in, empower action, create short-term wins. And then the third stage, implementing and sustaining the change. Don't let up make it stick. More recently, Cotter International has adapted this to reflect more contemporary versions of change, and that's uh, published in his recent book, Accelerate. Now, Cotter's process is really good if you take the time to read his books and understand the nuances of the steps, and if and only if you recognize that it's not a sequential process, it's iterative and concurrent. Simply applying the eight steps above will not take you very far as you miss the details and the caveats. Bespoke frameworks. If you're in a really large organization, you may have your own change process, and it will be some derivation of the ones above and a generic project methodology. I often think bespoke change frameworks for organizations work much better, as it means someone relatively high in the organization has cared enough to think through what the organization needs, and this gives you a real senior buy-in for successful change. Maybe by the end of this book, you're going to feel empowered to draft your own. Appreciative Inquiry. Appreciative Inquiry was developed by uh, academics David Cooper Ryder and Suresh Srivasta and advanced by the work of Cooper Ryder and Diana Whitney. It turns traditional deficit-based change on its head. Now, what I mean by this is usually change management starts after you have identified something is not working well or is broken. And this can be really dispiriting for all of the people involved and often hard for the people who have contributed to the brokenness to acknowledge and take responsibility for. So do it often enough in an organization and you will have an epidemic of change fatigue. Appreciative inquiry starts from a very different point. In acknowledging an appetite for change, the facilitator asks questions that are based on appreciating and positive regard. If you wanted to increase sales in an organization, you would ask people to share stories of the best sales performer they had ever witnessed. What was it that they did that they said that they believed? And in eliciting the secret source from those who are admired as representatives of the best that can be in the organization, you then look to replicate that. The basic framework is discover, dream, design, and destiny. A lot of time people think appreciative inquiry needs to be done in large group intervention. 
I find if it's your fundamental philosophy behind change, it actually fuels all of your small conversations one-on-one, and this can make a huge difference. Cooper, Ryder and Whitney, in their 2001 article, distinguish between traditional problem-solving view of change and the positive psychology approach. So with traditional problem-solving, there's the basic assumption is that an organisation is a problem to be solved. There's a felt need or identification of the problem, analysis of causes, analysis and possible solutions, and then action planning. Whereas appreciative inquiry starts with the assumption that an organisation is a mystery to be embraced. We appreciate and value the best of what is, we envision what might be, we dialogue what should be, and we design what can be. Agile or lean change. Now, much to the chagrin of many change practitioners, there isn't a formal agile or lean change methodology per se. A formal agile change methodology is actually counter to the philosophy of agile. And when I say agile there, I'm saying it with a big A. So there are, however, many values, practices and activities that originate from agile and lean or Kaizen methodologies that can be used within change projects. And some practitioners have developed methodologies from these principles and practices and will offer training in them. They tend to focus on increased communication and collaborative activity and a tendency to move towards co-creation with the audiences who are the intended recipients of change. There's often a strong emphasis on hypothesis-driven interventions where continuation of the change or amplification of the change depends on feedback from small experiments or pilots. This means that if you get feedback that it's not working, you can redirect your efforts. So in summary, these are the change models and frameworks that I am seeing as popular at the moment. And it is by far a non-exhausted list of the change methodologies methodologies you may wish to do extra research on. You've got GE's CAP, Beckett and Harris Change Management Process, BCG's Change Delta, Bridges Transition Model, Change Leaders Roadmap from Anderson and Anderson, Lamarche Managed Change, and then each of the big consulting firms, uh, Deloitte, Accenture, PwC, IBM, have their own proprietary change model. And if you want to take it to another level again, do a search on SlideShare for Mark Simpson's taxonomy of change-related models. You will find no less than 47 of them categorized by whether they are contextual, so a broader strategic of macro model that's helpful in understanding the context of change, high-level change, broad and conceptual, actionable with detailed steps and actions, and supporting models that underpin an approach to change. It almost sounds like whether they're simple, general, and accurate. So, for your conversation starters, some of the conversations you might want to have right now are, do we have a change model or framework that is well regarded in our organization? Do we have any resources that are certified in a particular model? How much time do we have to think about contextualizing a change? To what extent is our workforce change fatigued and may benefit from appreciative inquiry? How structured should our change be? Let's have a look at the implications for your change and adventure. Adventure one, you do not know what the change is to be. You have no internal change resources. You do have budget. Given where you are, you may want to work with a more emergent change methodology. 
So appreciative inquiry will be a good one for you, as will lean change, as the feedback cycles can help you shape what the ultimate change vision is. In Adventure 2, you do know what the change is to be, you have no internal change resources, and you do have budget. Now, if you're recruiting resources, then you probably want to understand what methodologies influence them. If they can't talk to any methodology or are not able to map out for you their semi-structured approach to change, proceed with caution. In saying this, I don't want to imply that all change should be structured, far from it. However, there needs to be room for emergent change and synchronicity. Someone who is not um, cognizant of the general stages of their logic, however, may prove challenging from a success standpoint. So adventure three, you do know what the change is to be, you do have internal change resources, and you do have budget. So in this instance, you may already have a preferred methodology within your organization, either bespoke or commercial. It's probably worth having a chat with your resources about how they have used the methodology successfully in the past and ask them about where they think there are limitations. This will be a really insightful conversation for you. And adventure four. So you may or may not know what the change is to be. You don't have any change resources. You don't have any money. I'm going to say in this situation, I think you should get yourself accredited in a commercial methodology really quickly. You're going to have a lot to think about. And at least in that situation, you're going to have a recipe that you can follow. So this concludes part one, shaping up the decisions you need to make. You're now able to have a considered conversation about your approach to change, who will do what, how you will define success and what methodology you will make. Bravo! Being able to have this conversation should put you in a much more confident position than you were at the beginning. And I'm hoping that you feel a bit more empowered to tackle part two, moving forward with your change. In the next section of the book, we'll look at how you build change capability within your business unit of your organization and ensure you are change ready. We'll also look at change communication and change leadership. And so ends my experiment, the six days in a row. Um, For those of you, so at this stage, I'm, I'm pending feedback before I look at whether I'll do anything else in the book, whether I give you part two or part three, um, that, yeah, I'll probably need to get some feedback as to whether it was a worthwhile endeavor for you and, and, uh, whether you've enjoyed it. And I'm also going to need time to do that. So this has been relatively comfortable to do over the new year break, but, uh, um, we might need a little bit later in the year to get the next lot done. Um, if that's what we're going to do, but if, you are new to the book and now you just can't wait for that and you need to hear what happens in part two or part three, then I'm going to invite you to head to Amazon uh, and look up Jen Fram, F-R-A-H-M. If you are overseas, if you're in Australia, head to my website, drjenfram.com. There's a shop there and you can purchase a book and I'll get that out to you. But um, thanks so much for indulging me in the experiment. Uh, Look forward to hearing what you have to say. And next time I'm back, I'll be back with Alina, who's keen to talk to you about their experiences with change. Happy change, everybody. You've been listening to A Conversation of Change with Dr. Jen Fram. You can find many more resources on leading change at my website, drjenfram.com 
I welcome feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the podcast. Why not connect with me on Twitter at Jen Frum or LinkedIn? 